The African narrative, Ms. Shakira Chunara, works at the World Health Organization in two roles, sexual and reproductive health being one and health workforce issues being the other. She's going to talk to us about those things. In terms of Africa, the continent at large, she has previously served at the AU between the years 2018 and 2020. And currently at the moment, she is with AMREF Health, well, she's the AMREF Health Commissioner on the state of universal health coverage of the continent. So certainly when we talk about universal health coverage in South Africa, it means only one thing, NHI. So all things to do with health, matters of importance on the continent, the continent's vaccine rollout specific and important to the times of COVID. This is a conversation then we should and must have, please, with Ms. Shakira Chunara. And I would implore those at home, especially in the context of health on the continent, perhaps to just engage where South Africa matches against her counterparts, both in the SADC region and the continent at large, and whether our resource spend against our health budget is consistent with those largely sub-Saharan African countries or not. Of course, more on that from your questions, but for now, Shakira, good evening. Thank you so much for your time. Very good evening to, to you and your listeners. It's lovely to check in. Let's have a bird's eye view insofar as it relates to from where you are having been part of the multilateral institutions, World Health Organization, the African Union, and the fact that you're a health commissioner on the state of universal health coverage on the continent. So all the multilateral issues that are pertinent not just to the country but to the continent, you would have very close access to. What is the health outlook of the continent, especially in her response to COVID-19? Are some of the questions South Africans are grappling with as against their leadership here similar to those experienced by other countries at all? Definitely. So it's been quite an exciting journey having worked for numerous multilateral agencies, but I think Serving on this African um, House Commission for AMRAF and the state of UHC, it's, it, you know, I think COVID-19 sort of reveals what's happening in the healthcare system. But I think that before COVID, the sub-Saharan African health system was already vulnerable. Um, for example, some countries I've worked in before, 90% of the health budget is donor-dependent. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you even have countries which invest in healthcare, like South Africa, but we're still not seeing the necessary health outcomes. So, so that's one issue. The other issue is that, um, you know, before COVID-19, we were starting to make progress on so many programs, whether it was malaria, whether it was HIV. And what COVID has done is there's now an entire sort of attention and focus solely on COVID-19. And, and this is to the detriment of all other health issues within, within the system. Now, of course, the response is bearing to whatever extent some fruits now that the vaccine is available and certainly the alarm bells that were of and about the third wave, I don't get the sense that there have been certainly as much as the reality following what we have since done, never mind the fact that the government has had to increase the level lockdown for the most part to level four, the rollout of the vaccination as well has had a hand. But there is talk of a fourth wave. I'm just coming back to South Africa specifically insofar as it relates to her rollout of the vaccination vis-a-vis the COVID fight. Where do we stand in relation to that? And what are some of the early warning signals or the triumphs that we can speak of? 
Well, I think it's not only in South Africa, but what concerns me globally and within the country is that there's this notion of once you're vaccinated, you're protected. And indeed you are, but that doesn't mean that we should throw all other measures out of the window. And, you know, looking at at sporting events in Europe, looking at the Wimbledon, things like that, you're noticing that there's all these silly regulations around where you mask outside the stadium and not inside. And what we're seeing in South Africa, um, and, and really what we're seeing in South Africa, is that people are letting their guard down. The minute everyone's vaccinated, we're back to, to social gatherings. We're not taking precautions, and I think that's the one important thing. Uh, another warning sign we've seen, and I think I'm quite worried about that, is during the unrest, there were there were zero social distancing measures or anything like that in place. And, and we're still on knife's edge as a country as to what's happening, what's going to happen. Um, and I think a new thing that's, that's starting to emerge, and not really a new thing, but a trend, is, is the increase in infections among children. And I think that's concerning. And so what's been the most difficult in the COVID-19 pandemic really is that every time we start to make some headway, there's some regress, uh, another variant. Uh, something that's more deadly, um, a new population that's being affected. And I think all of this keeps us quite anxious in the country. The behavioral question is an ongoing one, which almost has to replace what we knew as normal up to the first lockdown in the country, March 2020. This is at least for South Africa and probably for the world. Do we anticipate that what world in which we now live COVID, social restrictions, as has been employed, is something that we simply have to adopt for the balance of our lives, or should we prepare ourselves to go back to pre-2020 ways of living? I'm just trying to manage the fact that people might be fatigued around the fact that they've got to live this way. It's for the most part abnormal. It's not necessarily the way we were designed as individuals to live, given that humans are inherently social people. And the promise of a vaccine, which says it does take care, not necessarily make you immune to the virus, but certainly it does go a long way in establishing some form of immunity, that people are responding to that as a reality? Look, it it pains me to be pessimistic. And and like everyone else, I too am affected. And I think that we've got to be honest here. I think even though we're vaccinated, we can't just rush back to what happened pre-COVID or what life was pre-COVID. I think we don't know enough about this virus. We don't know enough about how it's going to play out. And and erring on the side of precaution is probably better. I'm not saying that this needs to be a 100-year sort of trend, and I hope not. But I think at least for the next couple of years, until we see how things pan out, um, it's important because what we're seeing from high-income countries is many of them started to drop social measures or social distancing measures, and they're now trying to, to put it back in place. And if we confuse the messaging across the world, I think that's also going to affect the way we, you know, we respond to the pandemic. And, and the fact that some parts of the world have moved on and what we see on our television screens and what we engage on social media are countries that are moving, sounding, and in every other respect resembling the world of 2019 and before. For instance, look at the sports world. South Africa is a very different environment 
to New Zealand, to Australia, a very different environment to the United States, to the most parts of Europe. And these are nations with which we have, for instance, sporting engagements with and among other engagements. Could that reality then not be a confirmation of our frustration on one side in as much as a confirmation of possibly the failures of how we, we being South Africa or the continent, has responded in her fight against COVID-19. That question I ask with the qualifier that, of course, there was the colonization of vaccines, countries like Canada buying in excess of eight times what their needs are. And this is a trend within the rich countries to do this sort of thing, despite the fact that world leaders called on their being of the practice or rather calling for that practice not to happen. So there's clearly this tension as to our reality is it's not resembling the reality of other countries in as much as there is that aspect of having hoarded vaccines, which has created two worlds in one. Look, that's, that's a conundrum that we face. And I think that it's important for us to think about the healthcare system before COVID-19. And before the pandemic, things were already inequitable. And so, for example, when we're talking about cervical cancer, when 90% of the cases tend to be in sub-Saharan Africa, um, the majority of uh, HPV vaccines produced and administered is outside of the continent. The continent has uh, a percentage of less than 10 to 20% in terms of HPV vaccination. So we already had inequity. We saw this with the HIV response. Um, many years ago, it was it was as early as the Mbeki regime, where ARVs were highly expensive because of the patents um, and because of international regulations around us. And it took a huge civil society movement, and excitedly in South Africa, who changed the trajectory. Um, and if you know, if we were expecting miracles with COVID, I, I hate to say it, we were probably expecting too much. Of course, this was going to happen. And so I think it's the, the deeply rooted structural inequalities that are, are, are continuing and playing out in this pandemic. Um, it was very unlikely that this was going to change. And, you know, we had, for example, um, the, the World Health Organization pushing the act accelerator and trying to make sure that there, were, uh, there was equitable vaccines throughout the world. But unfortunately, once you listen to the messaging coming out of WHO, you're seeing that not even these strong international mechanisms were able to push uh, equity. Mm, And so I mm. think similar to the ARV sort of situation, it's something similar we're facing. And what I'm very excited about, though, is that South Africa is emerging as a country pushing for this vaccine equity. It certainly is. I mean, when you think of the fact that there's this partnership between BioVac and Johnson & Johnson, which can only probably beg an even deeper question so far as it relates to such capacity in the country and the continent by extension, whatever happened and what are the reasons behind there not being a fully-fledged Kitlopila, the state of pharmaceutical that, among other things, is charged with bring, coming up with medical solutions of the kind that a vaccine would be. And the fact that BioVac, together with her partnership with Johnson & Johnson in these times, so quickly, so responsive to the global pandemic, can happen and be fashioned in response to the climate, if you like, it does dovetail to what you said earlier on in terms of our healthcare system was always going to come up short then because of the inherent systemic failures before, which only became pronounced now. 
And, you know, it, it's sort of also, you're getting me quite fired up this this part of the night. But I think, you know, it also makes me remember my time within the African Union. And, and one thing that left me very frustrated within the two years I served was that a lot of it is, is policy rhetoric. A lot of it is talk and no action. And, you know, it's, Sometimes it's easy for us to also blame colonialism and what's happening in in high-income countries and the power that they're pushing in South Africa and and the rest of the African continent. But let's be honest: if we if we look at continental and regional bodies, uh, specifically the African Union, there's mm. been so mm. many conferences, so many discussions on setting up an African Medicines Agency, on setting up manufacturing capacity, etc. Yes. And it's all essentially been talk. Nothing has been implemented. And and I sit back and think about the start of the pandemic. And again, this is it pains me to even make this comparison, but it's the reality of what it is. Mm. And in the beginning of the pandemic, if and even now, if one goes on to the European Union's website, you don't see them begging for funds. You don't uh, see them beating around the bush. They've put in place manufacturing capacity. They've put in place... PPE manufacturing, they're basically on the ball and they're pushing implementation. Whereas if you compare the African Union's response, they were they were busy posting pictures sort of, um, you know, receiving aid, receiving PPE. So, so I think that's also an issue is that beyond the talk shops, beyond just being aid dependent, uh, let's stop discussing manufacturing capacity and actually start to put some some teeth into it. So, for example, the African Union also set up so many task forces for COVID-19. What has any of this really translated to? Mm. We're hoping to take calls on this because this is quite interested, interesting. Rather, we have Dr. Shakira Shunara, who is a health activist. I think I'm just going to use that term given the fact that you have worked in the multilateral spaces of the World Health Organization, the African Union. You are now at the African Medical Research Foundation as a health commissioner on the state of universal health coverage on the continent, together with just running your own consultancy. And of course, it's obvious it's Shakira Chunara. 011-714-2006, fellow South Africans, fellow members of the SAFM Viewpoint team, please do call and engage our guest on this. Let's talk about something specific now because I think we get the overall impact and picture of COVID on the continent. But something which could translate from the resources we get, all the money we put aside for the advocacy and the talking and the forum shopping, whatever. If we could build capacity on the continent to even identify five core health ailments, sicknesses, diseases, viruses, call it what you will. For instance, Biovac, Johnson & Johnson, Port Elizabeth, South Africa, that could then be channeled throughout sub-Saharan Africa. Why can't African Union declare that South Africa will get the funds from the continent to develop this sort of capacity? Then, for instance, you identify malaria, which is still a major killer, particularly in the tropical region. Identify Mozambique or the DRC, and all the African capacity will be channeled through the DRC for that purpose. I'm just saying DRC for ease of reference. Then you pick up another one, Africa's response to another Ebola outbreak, which becomes a question of time more than if. You, you, you use the African continent, her people, her space, her resources, pull the donor funds. Of course, this is predicated on accountability. 
But is it so impossible for the continent to do that, given the fact that a lot of these diseases affect Africa and oftentimes they are responsive to these diseases at a time oftentimes even too late? Is that something which is not plausible to happen on the continent? So I think that's a big one. Um, one, we do have major diseases on the continent that we do need to fight. But there's also there's also sort of the environment around the diseases and illnesses that we see. And the one is, for example, the failure of the states throughout the continent to, to deliver on, on access to clean water. So, so this uh, resulting in waterborne yes. diseases such yes. as Bellasia, for example. Cholera. We're seeing yeah. very inequitable uh, social systems where, you know, South Africa is not that bad on the scale compared to some other countries we have worked in, where little girls are stopped from going to school. Little girls are married off um, as young as 10 years old. There's high levels of violence. Um, and that's also contributing. So it's, it's also, I think, the systems around us which matter. Just yesterday I was, I was on another show talking about even the food systems, um, the rise of urbanization, and what does that mean for diabetes and unhealthy eating, etc. So I think that's the one arm. The other arm that we simply haven't gotten, I think that's the core of universal health coverage, is to get our health systems functioning and right. Um, are the models correct? And so, for example, in South Africa, just to, to, to draw on some of my previous research experience, you'll find that things are moved from national to provincial to district, back to national, back to provincial. There's absolutely no clear systems and processes in place. That's the one thing. And the other thing is that, you know, whether it's donor funds or, or whether it's domestic financing, are we using resources efficiently? And unfortunately, we're not. And so I think those are some of the, the big issues surrounding healthcare on the continent. So do we not then have the capacity that is required to address our problems? I mean, if it has to be called that, then let us call it that. We don't have the capacity to respond to the governance issues that are inherent in being a government, to the challenges that you have, the resources that you are endowed with or have access to, to now mitigate the challenges that the problems ultimately have on your people. If we are not doing that, then surely, never mind the legacies of previous dispensations and colonization and for South Africa colonization and apartheid, what have you, similar to what you had said earlier on. Africa has to take the blame for some, if not for most, of her quagmire. You know, and I think that's what's difficult on this continent is that, and it frustrates me, it frustrates me a lot because the private healthcare system, yes, it has its flaws and yes, it's inequitable, but it's able to function, it's efficient, one is still able to access services. But when we look at the public healthcare system, it's similar to all other state institutions, and it's not just South Africa, it's throughout the continent. It, it seems we're sitting with this, this dilemma of the wrong people are in charge, and how do you get the right people in charge? And I think that's very difficult, because even, for example, just the Department of Health employment processes, 
a frustrating, a bureaucratic, <laughs> you're not going to get talent going into DOH, unfortunately. So, so and I, I can use myself as an example. When I finished my PhD, I tried hard and fast to try and get into the system and change things within the system. But just the employment system keeps the talent out of, of uh, these structures. Or if one even makes it into these structures, if you're not politically aligned, you're unlikely to survive. And I think we have to speak very frankly about these issues. Or if you don't follow the political sort of system uh, that's sort of put in place within state-owned enterprises and you want to bring change Mm. and you want to bring transformation, you're going to be out in the cold. People don't want to change the systems which are giving them fat salaries at the end of each month. So I think it's a systems issue we're dealing with. And, and in South Africa specifically, we can't get away from the facts. And I've seen it through multiple research projects that the unions hold so much of power as well. So, so even if people are doing wrong within the system, what really is the recourse for them? And so I think we, we're sitting with very systemic level issues. And it's not that we can't change it. It's that we need to tip the scale as citizens. And, and I think that's probably the solution, but it's very difficult to get there. Yeah, the minute you started speaking about some of the challenges in the public health care system and trying to find systems that work and changing systems that don't work, you just took me to the assassination that happened earlier today of a senior Gauteng Department Health official who was a witness in the PPE scandal that has embroiled this province's health care system. And, yeah, we're going to talk about that and among other things after the ad break. Two minutes 44, the ad break. Let's take it now. The time is 21.39. Um, Dr. Shakira Chunara is our guest this evening, health activist in context of everything that she does. And she, of course, runs her own consultancy firm. We're going to talk about healthcare on the continent in the light of COVID and beyond. Stay tuned and please do participate. on SAFM. Final hour beckon, or final five minutes beckon with Dr. Shakira Chunara. Doc, let, let's talk about the fact that the public service is not attractive. You've tried, you are not there. You've gone multilateral. You've gone to the WHO, to the African Union. It, for the most part, isn't something that has given you any bit more confidence such that you are no longer there. How should we re-engage our systems of government, our systems of governance, so as to become attractive again to the Shakiras of the world who've got so much potential to contribute to their countries and to their people before they can start coming to definitive conclusions that they want to be no part of the public system as it's insofar as it relates to healthcare? Look, I think that the solution lies, and we've been talking about it for a long time. We've been talking about cadre deployment. And I think the solution lies in depoliticizing structures. And that's highly important. And so when I entered the African Union, I was very excited because they had opened up this application process to young people, which allowed young people to get into the union. And there were 10 of us, and not all of us, are politicians, five or six are, and, and two or three of us are activists. And you could just see the difference of having an activist in the space questioning, asking things, 
pushing accountability compared to just having those who are politically aligned. So I think the one is, how do we move away from this cater deployment? And I think it's a big issue in South Africa. There's, there's this deep sort of normalization around it, and I don't know how we break that cycle. That's the one. Um, and I think the other one is it also hinders a little bit on the, the age gap. And in all honesty, we have people who get into spaces, who get comfortable, who start to just look towards retirement. And I think there's a need to also allow for a breath of fresh air to, to get into these spaces and to be able to lead. But unfortunately, we're finding that these spaces and places are reserved. Um, and it, it, it's very difficult to attract talent or even as talent to get within that. And I think that's, that's usually a big, con- uh, a, a big sort of issue. And, and I've got a colleague in the African Union who puts it very well. He says, Shakira, how is it that 224 million young people are being held in inverted commas in ransom mm. by 54 old men? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's a lot deeper than that, right? Because they get a patronage system going and start entrenching themselves with the real power brokers in any given society, such that 54 old men, for the most part anyway, can hold to ransom some two, three, four hundred million young people. Let's let's engage this one point, because if it isn't topical now, it'll never be topical. Universal health care coverage on, not on the continent, but in the country, because all of what we are seeing now is, in, for the better or the worse, an indication of what is to come when we have the NHI fully rolled out. Clearly, there are concerns. Look, I'm a big proponent of the NHI, and I've always been, because I believe that universal health coverage is, you know, we need to, we need to bridge that gap between those who can afford medical care and those who can't. But that being said, the problem in, in, in our country is that these policies are drafted without the intent and the mindset of implementation. They all sound good. And in the last 10 years, we've seen the, the politicization, really, or the political rhetoric and the NHI being used as, as a political rhetoric by parties versus what it should be in practice. And so if you read through the NHI bill, it really doesn't say anything different to the National Health Act passed in 2003, etc. It's all very generic. It's very big scale. It, it's not focused on the how and what do we do. And so we started to take some steps, which I'm very excited about. And that, for example, is the Office of the Health Standards Compliance and the Ombudsman's role in in. in in Isedimeni and bringing some justice to, to what happened around Isedimeni is important. And so I think the OHSC is, is a hugely important function for the quality of healthcare within the NHI. And so the other thing is the government also ran all of these pilots um, for two to three years or so, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And we've had reports which show all of the issues in the pilots, which are the same as the past 20 or 30 years. And the question is, what are they going to do about this? And so passing the NHI bill is not going to to help anything. So I think it's about time that, you know, we we center the discussion more on what will the implementation be. And looking at the COVID-19 pandemic, I think it's just been interesting to see how 
the private sector has been forced to work with government um, on vaccines, etc. But what we're also seeing is how the inefficiencies of government even hold the private sector back and how we're getting a vaccine four waves or three or four waves into COVID. And so those sort of things are unacceptable. The corruption mm. we saw with COVID-19 funds is unacceptable. Having a national health account uh, institution or fund under the NHI is going to be a disaster. Who's going to make sure that this, uh, this is corruption-free and the funds actually go where it's meant to go? And so I think the NHI, in ideal, it sounds fantastic, but in reality, I'm really, really afraid um, of the impact it's going to have. There's good reason to be afraid. Doc, thank you so much for your time and your sharing your experiences with us here on SAFM. Thank you. It's only a pleasure. And you've definitely got some all fired up at 9.45. <laughs> I regret that, but I don't regret that. <laughs> Twenty-one forty-seven. Thank you so much, Doctor Shakira Chunara, health activist, who of course is the proprietor of her own consultancy firm in her name, Doctor Shakira Chunara. Thank you so much, folks, for participating in this show. We'll be together again next week, Monday. Until then, be well.